Well, hello, everybody. It's good to see you today. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in Ecclesiastes, and today we will be in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 17. Uh, you can find that there in your bulletins, or you can find it in your own uh, Bibles if you have them with you. But we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and looking at verse uh, 12 to begin with. So if you are there and you're able, would you stand with me uh, as we come to God's word together? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been made, or why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Christ, through whom we understand your word in its fullest sense. God, I pray that you would be with us now as we look at this section and we talk about the serious and uh, sometimes troubling things that it deals with. God, I pray that we would be able to see it through the light of Christ and through his life and his death and his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our passage today, we see that Solomon is now returning once again to wisdom. He has been conducting a study using all of the many different abilities and opportunities that he has been given as a king highly blessed by God. Uh, We saw before that he looked at wisdom sort of in general, just seeing the value of wisdom. Uh, Last week we looked at him as he um, went through pleasure and he gave himself to pleasure to see if he could find some satisfaction in life through pleasure. But we saw that just like wisdom, he discovered that pleasure was also vanity. It didn't fulfill him, ultimately, the way that he wanted it to. And so, this week, he sort of returns to wisdom once again. Maybe with more of an emphasis of living wisely and how a life of wisdom might be better than a life of foolishness or folly. We see in verse 12, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And he's now returning to this again, trying to look at it and see, perhaps this will solve these problems that I'm searching for, or answers for. Uh, We look in our text and it seems like he is speaking of his experiment as being very exhaustive. Notice he asks, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. When he says the king, he is speaking of himself. He is saying, I've been giving all of these riches I have been given all of these opportunities. I have been given 
miraculous wisdom from God. Who could repeat this experiment after me and come to better conclusions? He comes to the point saying, no one. The man who comes after me could only hope to repeat what I have done, but he could not hope to further this study or come to greater findings. He believes that his study on riches and pleasure and power has been exhaustive and that he has come really to the end of the matter and that as he is looking over all of these things, he keeps coming up to the same conclusion. In the end, it is vanity. I have searched this thing through and through. Nobody will be better equipped to carry out this research. They will only hope to come to the same conclusion, that for them also it is vanity. And so what does he come to when he comes to his study? Well, before he gets to the vanity, notice that he says that wisdom is better than folly. He is going to look at wisdom and foolishness, and he says, yes, wisdom is better. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now here, Solomon, he's not trying to be cute. He's not trying to maybe subvert your expectations and say, well, actually, in some ways, foolishness is better than wisdom. He's not trying to do that. He comes to the obvious truth that we know. And that is that, in general, or just simply speaking, wisdom is better than foolishness. If you live wisely, your life will be better than if you live foolishly. He says that the wise person has eyes in his head, whereas the fool walks in darkness. Right? With wisdom, you can see better in a sense. But if you're walking foolishly, it's almost like being blinded in life. With wisdom, you have foresight. You're able to keep yourself from sorrow. You're able to keep yourself from terrible mistakes that might ruin your plans or ruin your relationships, uh, your friendships, your marriages, the relationships with your children. Wisdom will be better in these situations than foolishness. It is, of course, better. But Solomon has greater expectations as he's doing this study. He's not confining this study only to you know, a person's lifetime. But he's saying, what about ultimately speaking? Will the conclusions that wisdom is better than folly continue later? Perhaps, uh, maybe if he's thinking with the knowledge that we have now, what about when the sun blows up and the earth is no more? Will wisdom still be better than folly at that point? What about when all is said and done? Will wisdom be better at that point as it is now? But no, he says, in the end, it is vanity. This is only temporal. Yes, wisdom might make the journey more enjoyable than foolishness. But at the end of the day, the journey ends in the same place. Both the wise and the fool end up dying. And in verse 14, he says, Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Verses 16 and 17, How the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. To Solomon, death brings all of these things to nothing. 
All of the money that he might acquire, death cancels it all out. He no longer has that money. All of the wisdom in the relationships, all of the things that he has built, whatever he has accomplished with his hands, at the end of the day, those hands will rot away in the grave. And it will be nothing. Even all of the people that he has helped, they will die. And in the future, all things will be forgotten. He seems to be going after these things, um, these two things over and over, saying, at the end of the wise and the fool, at the end of their life, there comes death and forgottenness. Now, he's not speaking in an absolute sense. Sure, there are people who have died that Solomon remembers. So he's not saying that their memory is completely erased. But he's saying, ultimately, generally speaking, when we die, we are forgotten. Even those who maybe leave a name for themselves, others later will improve and they will just be a footnote. They will be something that is remembered in a history book, but really they aren't remembered as who they are, those people. I could even think of my own family history. I remember the names of my grandparents, but I don't remember the names of my great-grandparents. My parents might remember those, those names, But neither of us remember the names of our great-great-great-great-grandparents. These were common people who, whatever they did, maybe they did did amazing things, but they're forgotten now. And Solomon is thinking of this, generally speaking, saying, regardless of who you are, the wise and the foolish, they eventually die exactly the same, and their names are oftentimes long-forgotten. And so in our text, death is viewed almost like an enemy that is wiping people off the face of the earth and wiping their names off the face of the earth. And here, death, we want to look at death as our great enemy, but I want to look at it through the lens of Christ. Right? When Jesus speaks to his disciples, he teaches them that all of the writings of the Old Testament were pointing towards him. And we have to understand the book of Ecclesiastes through the lens of Christ and through the overall story of redemption, as we've said before. So yes, while we know that death is our great enemy, we also know that Jesus is our great Savior. Now, the salvation of Christ doesn't cancel out the enemy of death, or meaning that it doesn't cancel out death being an enemy. In order for Jesus to save us from death, that must mean that death must be an enemy. And so these things are complementing each other. And I want us to look at this under two headings. First, death is an enemy that is stronger than ourselves. And yet, secondly, death is an enemy that is weaker than our Savior. So very simply, death, an enemy stronger than ourselves. And death, an enemy weaker than our Savior. So first, how can we talk about it under this first heading? That death is an enemy that is stronger than ourselves. Well, first of all, notice that we are calling death an enemy. It is important that we see it this way because sometimes when we talk about death and when we're trying to comfort each other, uh, we often don't talk about death as being an enemy or as being something that is inherently bad and evil and not to be desired. For example, you might see through uh, throughout our culture, sometimes death is often called a natural part of life. For example, even Francis Bacon, who said some very good things, still said that it is natural to die as to be born. 
So birth and death are both equally natural parts of life. Uh, Even Yoda in Star Wars joins into this sentiment. (laughs) Yes, I usually don't quote movie people, but today I'm quoting Yoda. And wrong he is. (laughs) But... Yoda, you know, sometimes there's some philosophy who's, you know, tried to put into the movies and they try to give Yoda these statements to sound very philosophical. And at one point, he speaks about death in a way that I think is very unhelpful. But it is a way that resonates with many people today. So he says that the fear of loss is the path to the dark side. Now notice that the fear of loss is the path to the dark side. You shouldn't fear loss. You should approach loss in a different way, he's going to say. Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Mourn them, do not. Do not mourn the dead. Miss them, do not. Do not miss them. Attachment leads to jealousy. So notice, do not fear loss. Think of death as a natural part of life. Do not mourn for those who are lost. Do not miss them, and do not remain attached to them. In other words, come to peace with the reality of death. It is natural. The best way to approach death is simply to accept it as being a part of life. Do not mourn it, because that would assume that it is unnatural. Do not hate it, because that would assume that it is an enemy. Rather, come to terms with it. Just like being born, we also die. Just accept it as fact. This is something that all of these quotes have in common. Do not mourn death. Come to accept it. So instead, focus on the life that you have. View it as normal and natural. But is this how scripture teaches us to think of death? Is this how Jesus thought of death when he saw the death of Lazarus and he wept over it? Apparently not. When Jesus looked at death, he didn't view it as something good, as all things were created, but he saw it as something evil, something to be wept over. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, a passage that we often look at to talk about sin and death. And it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Notice the language there. Sin came into the world and it spread to all men because all men sinned. It was not a part of God's intention for mankind. Sin and death were not a part of creation. If we can define anything as being natural, we should go before creation fell. If we want to look at what is natural, we should look at Christ. or We should look at man in the garden as he was created and intended to be. They were not supposed to die. It was because of sin that death became a part of their existence. It was a foreign element. When we talk of something being natural, we talk of something that doesn't have additives. But sin and death are additives to human existence. We wouldn't say that Jesus, who shouldn't die or who wasn't sinful, we wouldn't say that Jesus was less human because of those things. In fact, we would say that Jesus was more naturally human because he didn't have those additives. When we look at sin and death, we must see these things as being added things, elements of corruption, 
not a natural part of humanity. Socrates is quoted as saying that death may be the greatest of all human blessings, but he is wrong. We don't consider death a blessing. I think nobody truly considers death a blessing. This would be a horrible thing to say to someone who is mourning the death of a loved one, that death is actually a blessing. The mourning that you are going through right now is actually delusional because death is natural or even a blessing. We know that this is not true. We resonate far greater with Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, when it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Notice in these passages, death is not a blessing, it is the opposite. It is a curse. It is a punishment that is given as the result of sin. Mankind is at war with an enemy that, apart from the grace of God, is undefeated. And it is because of sin. And so we must always think of death as being inseparable from sin. If you think that death is simply a natural part of life, then you have misunderstood it and you are not prepared to face it, Scripture teaches us. To rightly approach death, we must know or we must know it as it truly is, as Scripture links it to sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 says, The soul who sins shall die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that those who are outside of Christ are children of wrath, what it's, meaning, what it's meaning is that because of our fallen nature, not our natural state, but because of our fallen nature, we are destined to the justice of God. In our sinfulness, we are on track for the justice of God. Unless something changes, unless something takes us out of that trajectory, we are headed towards the wrath of God. We are coming to his justice, which is death. These are very sobering words. The rest of mankind, it says. All humanity, all whom Adam represented in the garden, are by their fallen nature destined for the justice of God. And this ultimately is seen in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, where it goes to that future judgment. And it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We only have to look around the world to see this. Why is it that people of all ages and all backgrounds face death? It is because all mankind is by their fallen nature children of wrath. However, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because that list that we just read there in Revelation describes all people. Every single sin mentioned in that list describes all people. 
And so if that were the end of story, the end of the story, if it stopped at the justice of God, then yes, all people would be children of wrath and face the judgment of God. But we see also that God is merciful. And so there is a way to be forgiven and a way to be saved from the second death. Solomon is right that both the wise and the foolish face death. They are both far weaker than their enemy. But we have to admit here that Solomon is incomplete in what is being revealed to us. We have to look at all of Scripture to understand what he is saying. He says of the wise and the foolish that the same event happens to all of them, speaking of death. But there is one whose encounter with death went very differently from the rest of mankind. And that leads us to Jesus. And he is the Savior who is far stronger than our enemy. So as we saw that death is an enemy stronger than us, let us now see that death is an enemy who is weaker than our Savior. The 11th century uh, Western theologian uh, Anselm, he's famous for many different things. But one of the things that he is very famous for is his work, Why the God-Man? He was looking at the person of Christ and asking, why is it that Jesus had to be truly man and truly God? How do these things work out in our salvation? And Anselm, or Anselm he comes to this position saying that being God, Jesus supplies the, infinite, the infinitely valuable payment that people could not supply themselves, and that being man, he paid the debt owed by his race. Uh, we talk about this a lot. Um, me as being a teacher, if I wanted a substitute teacher to take my place, um, I couldn't bring in a goat or a lamb, right? Because a goat and a lamb isn't a teacher. If I need a substitute teacher, I need to bring in someone who is licensed to teach. I need to bring a teacher. And so if we need someone to substitute for sinful humanity, who do we need to bring in? We need to bring a human. But not just any human can fulfill what we need. We need the God-man. And this is what Anselm comes to. He says that we needed God who could bear the weight of humanity's sin, who had the power to pay for us. But we also needed him to be man, one who could be a true substitute. This way of thinking of the atonement, it continues throughout the church as well. Um, it existed before Anselm, but we look at Anselm as being very influential in uh, bringing this together. But this continues to the church, and we find it in the Heidelberg Catechism as well. And it asks, why must Jesus be truly man, but also perfectly righteous? The answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which had sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. And then also it asks, why must in one person he be also truly God? The answer, that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Now this way of thinking is often called penal substitutionary atonement theory. The idea that Jesus atones for our sins by substituting himself for us and receiving our just penalty. And so, penal, penalty, 
substitutionary, substitution, atonement. In order to atone, he substitutes himself to bear our penalty. Now we see this throughout scripture in many different places. We see this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is prophesying to Jesus. The Lord, the Father, lays on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He substitutes himself in our place and he bears our penalty. And we know that Jesus does this voluntarily, out of love, to receive even his own justice by the hand of the Father. We see this also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to God, or bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Notice the substitutionary language there. The righteous one for the unrighteous. Jesus died as our substitute so that he might receive the penalty for us instead of us. Now, this understanding of the atonement, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, is often put against another view called Christus Victor, or Christ is Victor. Now, this view emphasizes that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, is victorious over all the powers that have subjected humanity. So especially thinking of Satan and death, that Jesus saves us by conquering our enemies and then saving us from them. Now, this is not foreign to Scripture. In fact, I think it's very wrong when people put these two against each other, Christus um, Victor or Christ the Victor versus penal substitutionary atonement. So, for example, even the Wikipedia article um, for this, it says, as the term Christus Victor, or Christ the Victor, indicates, the idea of ransom should not be seen in terms, as Anselm did, as a business transaction, but more in terms of rescue or liberation of humanity from slavery and sickness of sin. So notice there, even in Wikipedia, they're putting these two views against each other. The penal substitutionary atonement versus Christus Victor. But these two things are not at odds with each other. I believe, as many others do, that these are complementary to each other. What did we say about death? Why is it an enemy of us? It is inseparable from our sin that makes us deserve it. And so how is it that Jesus is even able to destroy the powers of sin and death, or the power of death? It is by dealing with our sin. In fact, this is so perfectly seen in Colossians, in that passage that we looked at earlier. Uh, it said in the entire passage, "...in you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Now those rulers and authorities are referring to demonic rulers and powers. And so how is it 
that Jesus is able to triumph over Satan? How is it that Jesus is able to have his, vic- his victory over sin and death? It says that this is when Christ cancels out our guilt, that they are disarmed. The only reason that Satan and death can have a hold on us is because of our guilt. Without sin, death loses its sting. And without sin and guilt, Satan, the the accuser, loses his grounds for accusing us. And so we are able to be set free from their grasp. Christ is able to take us out of the grave in his resurrection, having forgiven us of our sins. And so let's try to put all of these things together so that we can have a fuller view of the atonement. We can go back to Adam in the garden and see that about and see that by one man's sin, guilt and death pass to all mankind. We are condemned by our sin. Even under the sin of Adam, we stand in condemnation before a holy God. Death is the greatest enemy against us. Our sentence that we deserve and we cannot overcome in our own power. And God in his love sends his son to deliver us. The Son of God becomes a man like us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lives a perfectly righteous life, deserving nothing but life, not death in the slightest. And yet he chooses to substitute himself in our place. He approaches the cross. He approaches our enemy, death. But he does it with the power to defeat it. And since death cannot hold him, he breaks out of the grave. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, in the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in the grave. How can we break out of death in the grave? Through Jesus Christ, who has the keys to them. And so we are united to him by faith. He breaks free from death in the grave, which is holding on to us. And we follow him. Now, how are we able to follow him out of the grave? It is because his sacrifice has made atonement for our sins. He has done this so that we are no longer under the curse of the law, which keeps us in the grave. As Satan and death hold us captive, using the justice of God as their weapons, being accusers, the justice of God is satisfied by the substituting death of Jesus. And thus, this disarms those who would accuse us of sin. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus satisfies the law's demands, and this takes away our sins, this takes away our guilt. Sin being the sting of death gives us the defeat of death. It cannot prevail over us because the only power that it has over us is our sin. But when sin is canceled out, it loses its sting. It loses any power that it might have over us. 
If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then you are prepared for death. You are united to the one who has the keys to death and the keys to the grave. Its power has been taken away. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice how the language parallels there. Jesus says, I was the one who died, yet I live. And he says, if you believe in me, though you die, yet you will live. Why is this? Because we, were, are you, or because we are united to him by faith. And wherever he goes, we go. We share in his life, we share in his death, and we share in his resurrection. And just as death could not hold Jesus because he was righteous, so death cannot hold us because we are righteous in him. Now, as we're closing, Solomon says in verse 17 that he hated life. He says, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, why did he hate life? Well, notice he is searching through the many things of life, trying to find salvation. He's trying to find meaning and hope. He's looking at the pleasures of life. He's looking at the riches of life, the work that you can do in your life. Today, he's looking at the wisdom that you can use in life. But none of it is ultimately solving the problem. Because even if you have all of these things, you end up in the same place as the fool. And so he looks at life and he hates it. He looks at life and he despises it. It is proven to be useless in answering the questions that he has. Wise living did not bring any lasting good. It ended in death. And this reminds us that if we seek to find ultimate satisfaction, we cannot find it in life. We must look outside of our life. That is life under the sun. If we hope to find any deliverance, it will not be within our hands. We must find it from the hands of another someone greater than us, someone not subjected to death. It is only in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that we can find a life that is not to be despised. Now perhaps you fear death. Perhaps you look at your life and you hate it. Perhaps you look at life and you just see sorrow and you see suffering. And maybe you think, Life is full of so many miserable things. Perhaps it's better not to live at all. Perhaps you come to a position like this with, uh, with Solomon, coming to the same position. But I want to encourage you to look to Scripture. You see, if we look at our life, perhaps we might find suffering and troubles. And this might bring us to the point where we say that it's really not worth it. Maybe life only offers suffering. And even the joy that I do find eventually is gone. Scripture reminds us to look beyond life, to look for salvation even from a broken life. You know, when Jesus comforts us using the providence of God, he comforts us by saying that even when we suffer in life, your heavenly Father is looking over you so that even if a hair on your head falls to the ground, 
it doesn't do so without the permission of your heavenly Father who has good purpose for it. I mean, this is what we see in the book of Job especially, right? Job could say, what good is a righteous life? I've fallen into the same things that happened to the unrighteous. What good was a life of wisdom? I've fallen into the same thing that the life of folly would bring. I've lost everything, even though I've lived wisely and done what I should. But later, it's only when Job is able to look beyond and look to God and trust in God that he's able to come to the position that when I think life is meaningless or worthless or something to be despised, I can look to God whose authoritative word tells me it is not. It is not worthless and meaningless and, be, and to be despised. If we need comfort, we must go to Christ. If we search for ourselves for comfort, oftentimes we will only find weak hands that cannot hold us up. One of the most comforting catechism questions is the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's known to be one of the most beautiful of all of the catechism questions. And it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Interesting way to, be, to begin a catechism, actually. Looking to comfort. But what is your only comfort in life and death? It answers, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Notice how the atonement is being talked of. Both of those things, freedom from Satan and the tyranny of him, and then also the forgiveness of sins. He who watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Notice that it's not only death that is our suffering, but there are many things in life that is suffering. Jesus heals us from all of these different things. We can be very thankful that when Jesus looked at death, he didn't consider it a natural part of life. Think of Jesus when he encounters the many different types of brokenness. When Jesus encountered blindness, he didn't consider it a natural part of life, but he restored it to sight. When Jesus encountered people who were broken in their body and crippled, he didn't consider it a natural part of life, something to just live with and say is okay. But instead, he brought it to what the natural state is by healing them. And when Jesus encountered death, he didn't call it natural, but he restored it to what is natural, life and everlasting life. Many philosophers might say that death is something that we must come to terms with, not to view as a tragedy. But when Jesus heals Lazarus and calls him out of the grave, he is pointing towards something even greater than that. Yes, Lazarus was called out, but eventually Lazarus died. It was more of a restoration rather than a resurrection. But it is pointing to something even more ultimate, and that is a resurrection when all of our suffering is done away with, all of our sin is done away with, 
All of the tears that we have are wiped away. And not only is death healed and destroyed, but all of our suffering. While we may not be strong enough to destroy death, Christ is strong enough. And he has destroyed death for all who trust in him. Just very quickly, as Solomon talks about death and forgotfulness, we can remember that in Christ we have life and our names written on his hand for all eternity. We will never die or be forgotten if we are united to Christ by faith. So look to him in all of your suffering and as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So let us go to him now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to battle death on our own. God, just as Israel would have been lost against Goliath if you hadn't have sent David, so we would be lost against death if you hadn't sent the son of David to battle our enemies for us. Father, I pray that you would lift up our eyes to look towards him in all of our suffering. Lord, in all of the effects of the fall, let us not come to terms with them, but I pray that we would rather look to Christ for deliverance, that we would look to him for strength and help in all of our times of need. Father, we pray that you would use your word to comfort us when we need comforting. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.